Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the Augment Podcast, the Young Arthroplasty Group Podcast on the Amplified channel. My name is Jesse Wolfstadt, and I'm a hip and knee surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto. Hey, how are you guys doing? My name is Dr. Peter Gold, I'm a private practice surgeon at Panorama Orthopedics and Spine Center in Denver, Colorado, and really honored to have Dr. Parvizi, Jay, on the podcast with us today. Truly a legend, a legend in arthroplasty, a personal mentor to myself. He's really a man who doesn't need any introduction. He's internationally known as a world's leader in periprosthetic joint infections and VTE prevention. But, you know, I think he's really mostly known for being an incredible guy and a collaborator and really honored to have him be on the podcast and for us to learn a little bit more about his background and about the man behind the legend. So Dr. Parvizi, thanks for being on here. You know, I'd love to hear your background and where you grew up and how you made it to be in America and at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jesse. Very, very kind introduction. I'm not sure if I'm deserving of it, but it's been a pleasure to know you both. And uh, Peter, it was fantastic to have you here as a fellow. Incredible. I guess you can say that I'm one of those very fortunate American immigrants that came to this country with a lot of dreams. And this country provided incredible opportunities for me. And I stood on the shoulders of many, many great men and women, and accomplished many of those dreams. I grew up in Iran. I was born in Iran back in 1965. I did my elementary, middle school, and part of my high school education in Iran. Then I had to leave because that was during the Iranian Revolution, which, as you all know, the stuff going on right now, a terrible, terrible uh, situation in Iran. majority of the people who wanted to really accomplish anything, had to leave the country. I was one of those waves of first immigration out of the country into anywhere, anywhere that we could go. So through Turkey, I made my way into England. Uh, It was a long journey. I arrived in England, had to learn English, put myself through education, because those were the years that no money could come out of Iran and basically had to be independent and stand on your own feet. Put myself through college equivalent, medical school. And then my ambition was to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. So I actually studied quite a bit for four years to train in cardiothoracic surgery. One morning sitting there with my mentor, he asked if I wanted to do an extra degree. I told him, yeah, I would like to really look into the mechanotransduction mechanism of how endothelial cells work. Starling's law, you know, as they get stretched, they put out more biological forces to squeeze the blood harder out of the heart. And the best place to do that study was Mayo Clinic, because uh, there was a fantastic surgeon with the name of Dr. Michael Wood that ran a blood flow lab at Mayo Clinic. So my mentor connected me to him. I arrived in Rochester, Minnesota, started to work with him. And during that time, I met one of my great mentors, Dr. Bernie Mori, who then basically would come there on Wednesdays for our lab meetings. And through that, 
and the fact that I met my wife within uh, five months of arriving in Rochester, Minnesota, <laughs> I decided to uh, stay behind. There wasn't that many Persian women in Rochester, Minnesota. There were actually not that many people in Rochester, Minnesota. So then I trained at Mayo Clinic. I had incredible mentors there. People like Dr. David Llewellyn, Dr. Dan Berry, Dr. Truesdale, Dr. Cabanella. All of these people impacted my lives immensely. Dr. Alan Hansen was one of those first people that turned me on to the infection world. And he mentored me immensely in that field as well. And I was then lucky to go to Switzerland to do my adult reconstruction fellowship in Switzerland and then came back to Philadelphia in 2003 and I've been in Philadelphia ever since. So the first job that I had is still the same job that I have 20 years later. So that's like briefly my life. Uh, it's it's a, really an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. I'm, I'm curious, what converted you from cardiothoracic surgery to orthopedics? What did Dr. Mori say to you that convinced you? Yeah, so great question, Jessica. When I was doing the blood flow lab, I actually was studying the molecular mechanism of mechanotransduction. And one of the areas I had a huge interest in was calcium channel blockers in the endothelial th- uh, cells. The blood flow lab was actually an orthopedic department because Dr. Michael Wood did a lot of microvascular work, et cetera. So blood flow lab was a, uh, an orthopedic department, which then allowed me to go to the orthopedic Wednesday meetings. That's when I met Dr. Mori and Dr. Mori convinced me that cardiothoracic uh, surgery was a dying field. Orthopedic was a better one. And I'm so glad I heeded his advice and switched because my goal was to go back to England. I was there for a year. And I was going back to England to be a senior registrar in cardiothoracic surgery and meeting Dr. Mori plus meeting my wife, I decided to change course. And it's during that time I started studying for my USMLE exams and then looking for an orthopedic residency. And nowhere would have me except Mayo Clinic. So I stayed at Mayo Clinic and did my uh, residency there. Amazing. They probably regretted that since then, but (laughs) now it's too late. I think probably more so they regret not bringing on, on on staff. Yeah, there was a it was an interesting place. And Rochester is an amazing city, beautiful summers, not so great winters. And you know, for somebody like me coming from a very, very hot and temperate country like Iran, I sort of I was lucky that I could regenerate my digits, but I think I went through many times <laughs> of uh, frozen, uh, frozen feet and fingers. It was very, very tough winters, really hard winters. How do you think your journey to the U.S. and where you are today, how do you think leaving home so young and you know, really making it on your own, working to pay your way through undergrad and medical school, you know, how do you think that hardship has kind of made you the surgeon and physician you are? First of all, it's taught me some humility, and I hope, I hope I can claim that I am not always too arrogant, but humility, the fact that a lot of people that are out there and doing what we consider as menial job or laborers and that type of stuff, it could be any of us. Everybody has to do what they have to do in order to be able to survive. And I had to wash floors, wash toilets, fill shelves, drive a cab, do gardening, bricklaying, construction, carpentry, you name it. Any job that anybody would give me I would do. 
So that's number one, that every human being in this society is worth exactly the same, regardless of their position or their power. Number two is that working hard is a good thing because you really come to realize and recognize the value of money, but more importantly, the value of luxuries and the comforts that we have in this world. And many of us take those for granted, but many people don't have that luxury of life. Many people really struggle to have their ends meet. And they have to go through a lot of self-sacrifices, family sacrifices, etc. The third lesson I learned to this process is that adversity actually really hardens you. And as long as you learn the right lessons, then you can make those pay great dividends for you down the line. So you can't really, in my opinion, get to higher places without experiencing some degree of pain. And that pain is really what makes you appreciate these things further. So I'm in that like dilemma, which most of you will probably be. Uh, do you put your kids through the same type of adversity and make them experience all of these hardships or do you protect them? I think you need to hit the balance, right? I think it's very important for us to make sure that our children understand the incredible value that liberty, freedom, financial protection and family love has for them and train them and teach them to be able to utilize those really well in life to become better citizens. And that's all it is. I think, again, going back to the same thing I said, I don't judge the value of a person by what title they hold. I judge their value by what type of a human being they are. All right. Yep. Podcast over. We got it. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's really great. And, you know, even, you know, working, working with you, it's very obvious and all the staff that works with you, you know, they, everybody feels equally respected and, um, you know, you really do make, make it a, make it a point to you know, make sure to recognize everybody in the room, people cleaning the room. Um, it's, it's a really important thing to have seen, especially being a younger surgeon starting off. Um, and we have a lot of, a lot of things going on in our head and things that we're anxious about that you kind of get tunnel vision, but it's important to, to remember that the other people there are also working really hard too and are an equal playing field as you. Yeah, these are great lessons in life. And I'm sure you will do amazingly well because you, you had an amazingly affable personality, appreciated. You know, my memory is now failing me, but I try to know the names of everybody and anybody that works with me, my team, and that's the janitors in the corridors and the CEO of the hospital. They're all really, to me, they're all doing the same job in the society and very, very important contribution towards the society and patient care. Not to get too sentimental, but it's it's very inspiring to see the impact you've had on Peter and the lessons that you can teach all of us on treating everyone within the organization well, thanking everybody for the role they play and taking care of our patients. Peter was amazing. And I think he was like one of those fellows that recognized those and has a very, very likable personality, very engaging. But I think the lesson for all of us is that we will need people around us and the better you treat them, the more of help you will get when you're in that, in that situation. And all of us will, will at some point in life be in a desperate situation where we need other people's help.
Dr. Pervizi, after such a storied career, is there anything that still humbles you? I guess it's one question. And then the other thing is what inspires you most still? Yes, I, absolutely. There's a lot of things that humbles me. I, sometimes when I sit in a crowd in like these academic meetings, people delivering incredible lectures about their accomplishments, I sort of feel that I've really failed my mission in many ways of not being able to make the impact that I wanted to make. And there are days where I feel I probably haven't, I'm not working hard enough or didn't work hard enough. And I strive to use every hour in a day in a way that I can make that hour count. But at the same time, though, Jesse, is as you age, you sort of realize that things start to shift in different directions. And what was really a priority for me in my 40s may not be the same priority in the 50s. One of the things that I really feel I could have done a better job, and by the way, I think this is going to be the, the same for all of you, I'm warning you, is that we don't spend enough time with our families. It's just there's not enough time in a day to be able to do everything that you want to do, and on top of that, be next to your family. But I did have three rules. One was I would never miss any important birthdays or any important events in my family's life. So if my wife's birthday, my kid's birthday, absolutely, I would be at home. If my daughter had an important dance competition, I would try to be there. Number two is take them with you and try to spend more time with them on your travels. And that's really very, very important. I would pull my kids out of school all the time go to South Africa or wherever else I had to go to and use my air miles or whatever else, pay for their trip. Those were much, much better, in my opinion, of lessons for them than being at school. So my kids have seen numerous, numerous, numerous countries. And I think that's really, really very, very important. And the number three, which somebody else actually taught me this, don't think about quality time. There is no such thing as quality time with your family. It's always quantity of time. They will remember how many hours in a day you were there. You could be sitting in the house, you reading your book, and they're sitting in another corner doing things, but they are aware of your presence. And lack of presence is really what bothers them. So that's one area I may have failed my family, didn't spend enough time with them. Dr. Mike Cabanella used to say, you know, and you're deathbed, you're not going to turn around and say, I wish I'd written three more papers. You're definitely going to start to think, I should have spent more time with my family and my friends, etc. So that's one area that I think humbles me to some extent. The area that I absolutely loved and I still love is really engaging with young residents, students, research fellows, clinical fellows, people like Peter, because I actually learned so much from them that I think I impart to them. So there are lessons, and I'm sure you all know Peter's story, but like it's such an inspiring story to hear about it. And honestly, I'm so proud of him for being in the field of orthopedics, what he has done for humanity. So I really love my interactions with people like Peter because sometimes you really learn a huge deal from them. But now my priorities are shifting. You know, I'm not finding research as rewarding or as stimulating as I used to do because I sort of feel like I've done what I needed to do. Now is my turn to sort of step away and let the younger generation take over. 
I do have a lot of these bucket list items that I need to really get to. And I would love to start that work on. Yeah, so family and friends are incredibly important. So my priority is now shifted towards spending time with my friends, like not in the meeting, spending 10 minutes and having a cup of coffee or going out for a drink, but like literally putting aside a whole weekend and going and visiting people like Peter and, you know, seeing their lives and seeing what they do and spend some time, go hiking, go and have a drink. So that's the priority for my life moving forward. Thanks for that. You mentioned spending time specifically at meetings. I think all of us that have been to AUKUS and seeing you around the meetings, you know, it really feels like you do the meetings right. Do you have any like recommendations on for especially younger surgeons? Like, how do you go about doing AUKUS quote unquote right? The question you ask is a great one. How do you get involved and how do you do these meetings right? I think first is decide which of those meetings or organizations you identify with and their mission is really acceptable to you. And that's what you really want to accomplish. Two is if you're involved in any societies, you really have to deliver and do the things and they will recognize what you have done and how great you are. And in return, there will be rewards for you in the future in terms of leadership involvements, et cetera. But I do think that we have limited times. My personal feeling is that you can't really do more than three or four societies at most. No point in becoming a member of 20 societies and marginally being involved in all. I think it's much better to be a member of three or four societies and be deeply involved in all. That's great advice. One question just in terms of, of collaboration. I mean, you, you brought a lot of people together in terms of the ICM meeting and recently with the VTE consensus meeting. Where did you come up with that idea and how do we continue to collaborate with each other given the current state of orthopedics? Yeah, one thing is that we have to remember there are borders outside the U.S. and there are some incredible minds and brilliant people outside the U.S. Very important to try to do as much international collaboration because a person's problem in China, France, Albania is probably exactly the same as their problem in the U.S. with some geographic variation. So I love these international collaborations. And that's why that ICM meetings was put together international. In the US, we're very fortunate to have unbelievable, brilliant people. But when you complement that with skill set from outside the US, that becomes even more powerful. Number two, I think we need to identify areas in desperate need of research and evidence and try to move those forward. And I think you will both agree, infection is one of the worst problems that we're facing right now in arthroplasty. And when I started 20 years ago, it still was one of the major problems. We have made some strides, but more strides and more developments need to be made on that front. VTE, the same deal. And that these two areas lend themselves to consensus meetings because one to generate evidence and do a randomized perspective study would require thousands and thousands of patients because the events are so rare yet devastating. Number two is because these are the areas that matter the most for the orthopedic community and really an area where we should concentrate on. And number three is that this is an area where multidisciplinary skill set can be brought in together microbiologists and basic scientists, surgeons, infectious disease specialists, and veterinary surgeons, et cetera, and the VTE, cardiology, hematologists. That's why I really, really enjoyed learning from others, from other disciplines and bringing them together to be able to come up with 
recommendations based on the available evidence, identify areas that are in need of further research down the line, and in the absence of such, come up with consensus recommendations. Yeah, all, all, both the VTE and, and the PGI ICMs. You know, I have, I have the, the PGI ICM here in the textbook here in my uh, bookshelf, and I go to them often. And, and is it translated to Canadian, Jesse? <laughs> there's lots of a. There's lots of A's in the boots. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. I mean, it's really helpful, and I go to specific chapters, and I'll pull it out and teach residents and fellows about it. So they're really groundbreaking work, and, and immensely helpful to all orthoplasty surgeons for sure. So thank you. And I mean, there's so much that's covered that's not orthoplasty, just general orthopedics. So thank you for all that work that you've done for us. I often joke when your name comes up with our fellows that you're the hardest working man in orthopedics, sort of like James Brown, the hardest working man in showbiz. So one thing that maybe is the the positive for all of us, if you're going to slow down your research is maybe there'll be some ideas that you won't cover and won't solve. And there'll be other stuff for some of us to uh, become experts on. For the lack of intellect, I just have to compensate by working harder. You see, that's uh... But I am beginning to slow down and it's becoming really more gratifying to uh, explore other other things in life. Because I think by now, you know, if I haven't made my contributions and if I haven't done enough, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that in the next five, six years. So now is the time to shift sideways and do other things that excites me more. Speaking of shifting gears, you're set to assume the role of AUKUS president next year. What do we have to look forward to under your leadership? Yep. I want us to make AUKUS the go-to organization for adult reconstruction education for the entire globe. And I think the leaders before me and the organization over us done an incredible job of it. And we all know how we've expanded beyond the borders of the U.S. and in the U.S. And thanks to societies like you, YAG committees, We are now the household name amongst all the young surgeons going into arthroplasty. I I think that's no exaggeration. I'm sure you would both agree, right? So we want to do that. We want to be the source of education material for all our surgeons in the United States going into authority construction. But I also want this to go beyond the borders of the U.S. because we have so many countries where Joint replacement started two, three, five years ago, and it's probably not being done exactly the same as we would like to see. So countries that would benefit from that education. And some of these are deprived in terms of access to education. Some, the volume is too low for big societies to exist in those countries to be able to really do the education internally. So because of that, we will have that. I will work with the international committee to go beyond the borders. We've done a great job with Latin America, amazing job. We do have presence in Europe and we do go to Asia occasionally, but I think we can do much better in the Middle East, much better in Africa, and clearly we can do much better in Europe and other places. So that's number one. Number two is I think we have done an amazing job with advocacy, but I think this is probably time for us to start to not just for joint surgeons, but for entire medical community to start to re-examine, has our advocacy efforts been very effective? If so, great, we need to continue those. If not, what are the areas where we can do better? 
and make a mark and make an impact. The third area is the area of education and diversification of that education amongst deprived societies. Again, in the U.S., being able to access and go beyond. And I'm talking about diversification. I think AHK has done an amazing job of having that diversity issue at its core. And I mean, look at the Women in Arthroplasty Society, for example, and others. And I really think we have fabulous access to some great, brilliant women in arthroplasty that we have not utilized so far, and also bringing other parts of our society that will be able to complement what AUKUS is and is planning to do in the future. And so I, it'll be hard to step into the shoes of Brian Springer, who's done an amazing job, or the leaders before him. But I'm getting trained, and I'm learning from the guys right now. And hopefully when the time comes, I will be able to do my part for that year that I will be in the hot seat. Awesome. Well, we really look forward to uh, everything you'll bring to AUKUS during your presidency. It'll be my pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to working with committees like yourselves. It's going to be amazing. Well, I think this kind of wraps everything up from Iran to England to freezing cold Rochester and you know, life and an amazing career at Rothman and in Philadelphia is really great having you on. And I hope our listeners hearing a little bit more beyond the research and more about the, the person you are and hopefully it inspires all of us to be our best selves and be the best surgeons we can, not only for our patients, but for the staff around us and for everybody who we're, we're working with. It's a great honor to have you on and you know, looking forward to seeing what you continue to do for us and what you do together in the future. Thank you so much, Peter and Jesse. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.